Hello, and welcome to the Bit of a Tangent podcast, where we bring you mind-bending ideas from science, philosophy, artificial intelligence, and medicine. I'm Jen Lucker, a data scientist with a background in computer science and genetics, and, as always, I'll be joined by my co-host Jared, Bayesian, autodidact, and, when he finds time, medical student. In this episode, we depart on a number of conversational tangents, including how to deduce germ theory as a hunter-gatherer, why having interesting conversations is about making people interesting, not meeting interesting people, and why we might have a sense of self, and whether it's outlived its usefulness. We also dip into topics like morning routines, creatine monohydrate supplementation, and a million other tangents. As usual, you can find links to everything we discuss and more in the show notes. This was our first and so far only face-to-face episode. We recorded it at my kitchen table on squeaky bar stools, the same day my neighbors happened to be hosting a party, so there's some suboptimal audio in this one. We've removed the worst of that in post, but with only a single mic, editing proved a lot more challenging. We thought about not releasing this one because of the audio, but frankly the added energy of being in the same room resulted in a conversation that more than makes up for it with its content. We had a lot of fun recording this conversation, and we hope you feel like you're sitting at the kitchen table with us as you listen along. Without further ado, here's the episode of Bit of a Tangent. You take creatine on a daily yeah, basis yeah. for the, the nootropic effects or whatever, yeah. or just gen, yeah, just general performance. It seems well. to help on both. I mean, primarily, it's, it was you know for for fitness reasons, mm-hmm. and that definitely has an effect. Like yeah. the first time I started taking creatine within like two weeks, I noticed a, a gen. Well, I noticed an effect. Whether that was from the creatine or whether it was from knowing that I was taking the creatine, it's hard to say. But mm-hmm. both are legitimate effects. You know, if you could lift more weight because you of the placebo effect that's that's fucking working in my in my measures yeah that, that that's um a low cost intervention right considering creatine is so freaking cheap but then there was that paper and i feel like i told you about this because i i don't know maybe you maybe came across it because i would definitely been telling a few people about this it was a paper that found that it improved cognitive performance because the hypothesis being that you know, if you can produce uh, ATP more efficiently, yeah. um, then that helps your brain most mm. of all. I don't know about if you're in ketosis, but... So, yeah, I, I don't know if it was you who told me about that, but I, I've seen um, those results. Yeah. I, I haven't read the, the full paper. I suffer from that. Uh, it's a <laughs> sin not to read a paper. It, is, it does fall, for me, like there's, there's this interesting, like more and more people are talking about this intersection between brain metabolism mm. and like energy usage in the brain and how that relates to cognitive performance, right? Mm. Because, you know, when people are thinking about becoming smart or whatever, the traditional focus has been on, you know, finding so-called smart drugs, rewiring your neurons, whatever that might mean. But what's interesting now is just thinking about it in terms of energy crisis, right? And I mean, anyone who has ever had, you know, that big pasta bowl after lunch and then Mm. slipped into a quiet, peaceful coma (laughs) knows that... Um, you know, to some extent, just a pure energy crisis in the brain can be like a, the, a major cause of, of uh, cognitive. Yeah, and that brain fog. Slump. Yeah. Yeah, on that. So, firstly, with, with in terms of like the post lunch slump. Yeah. What I found really interesting, and I don't know if you've gotten to that point in uh, Why We Sleep. Have you finished it? Look? I haven't finished it. Oh, okay, yeah. So, uh, I can't remember when he brings it up. I think it's fairly early on. 
um, but how that, that sort of natural like dip in, in energy happens regardless of whether you've actually eaten lunch because it's a, it's just, it just happens to dip at that time of day. Yes. So we associate it with lunch, but it's actually largely independent. You would have an energy dip anyway. So obviously ha- having a meal, your body then takes you know, time and resources and energy to digest mm. it. But you would have that to some extent anyway, just mm. because of, I think it's your, I'm trying to remember because you've, got, you've, got, you've essentially got two systems, right? So you've got your, your melatonin, Right. system which is going to build up in the evening and then decline towards the morning yes. and then you've got your you've got your, a, your sleep pressure from um what's adenosine, the, adenosine right yeah, yeah. so so you got these like two sort of cycles and you want those nicely aligned but then there's like a i think it was that was why you have that natural dip it may have been anyway it's been a while and i've got thorough notes on it but uh, mm. But th- so I found that really interesting that it's not you don't actually need to have the lunch to have the post lunch dip but I, I don't know if you've noticed like I've noticed, depending on what I eat or if I eat at all, the the severity of that dip yes, is noticeably different. And that's exactly what's relevant. Um, is that yeah? I mean, and, and it's the same kind of thing as like with um, if you just smash a mass of like bacon and eggs and toast in the morning, mm. like it's delicious. But, but you, you then you then shit for like two hours, right? Whereas <laughs> if you if you just have a cup of coffee in the morning and like run up a flight of stairs, you can then be a beast until 2 p.m. Surprisingly so. Yeah. so. Why don't we actually describe for people uh, our individual ideas of what makes a, a good morning. What, what <laughs> morning routine episode. Morning routine episode. <laughs> let's, 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 let's get into that. Let's get into um, okay, cool. Would you like to start? I'm just bringing up my... Yeah, um, you bring up your... My why we sleep. I, I just want to quickly search through my uh, Kindle notes on oh. the why we sleep to try and Go find the... That section. So yeah, if you are want to you start using my clippings or that website where you can search through all your no, so I don't actually use that. What I actually have a Git repository for it. So what I do is I just plug in every time I plug in the Kindle to put new books on. I then I just I just copy the my clippings into my repository and then I like commit the the changes and okay. push to the to and the, have you maybe is it, did you use some sort of scripting or something to separate them out into different books or? um so what i what i would then do is i can just like do like basic like text processing to okay. find all the things that are from a specific book and then copy that so for like tetlock super forecasting yes. i have a separate file that's got so i have everything in my clippings but then i have a separate file that's just the super forecasting stuff and then i have a separate file that's just uh, from atomic habits now mm actually listen to the audiobook but I have the ebook as well and so yeah. I just went and found all the uh, chapter summaries because yes. I thought those were those absolutely great, brilliant right? but that gives you everything you need right so mm-hmm. now I have this document that's like I mean let's see how many lines there's but I um, it, yeah 189 lines of text that I can review at any time and like completely have refreshed that book so obviously reading the book is super valuable but now I have that as well mm-hmm. so yeah it's, it's, a, it's a it's a useful system and it's a, a good you know, using a Git repository for it makes it really nice to yeah. not accidentally delete stuff. But yeah, so morning routines. And I think what we're going to have to talk about as well now is uh, our just individual thoughts on reading and processing and remembering. So yeah, I think that, that, In different, through different media as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, so morning routine. morning routine, I've moved much more into focusing on getting the just a, a reasonable amount of sleep, like respecting sleep, so that I wake up fairly naturally at the moment somewhere between 6.30 and 7. Although there's these two middle-aged white women who have started taking up their New Year's resolution of jogging or something in the last week. And they stand outside my bedroom window for for the last uh, week at like 5 in the morning and they have a natter. Yeah, they talk about oh, so they're not even doing jogging yet. No, no, they're just they, the, they're warming up. The pre, they're, it's warm like, up. they're stretching their vocal cords. <laughs> 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 I 
right? I mean, you know, they're, they're probably going to record a four-hour podcast on their, on their, on their power so. walk. So they do some, some stretches. Um, so for me, like, I mean, my ideal morning, I've moved away from trying to cram in every little life hack and routine that you can read about, right? I mean, I went through a stage where, you know, if Tim Ferriss suggested it, I was trying to pack it into a morning. And I mean, some of them uh, were interesting and good, but generally, I think we've both experienced this, is if it sticks, that's good. Mm. And it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of our lives are just throwing new techniques against the wall at like a constant rate. And whatever sticks, that stays, but a lot of it gets scraped off. Yeah, right? like if, if, it's, if it's easy and quick and has marginal benefit, you, it, you'll keep doing it. And if it's difficult, but has huge benefits, you'll keep doing it. But mm. like everything that's sort of in between. Well, you're not quite sure about the, the impact, right? Yeah, like, like a good example would be like, there's like certain supplements that they could have a marginal benefit, mm. but they're super expensive. Like, so one for me is, and it's probably something I'll revisit in the future, depending on like my, you know, economic situation, but like krill oil, mm. right? So it's like, you pay like 500 rand a month for krill oil, right? Yeah. It's like, supposedly much more bioavailable than like fish oil supplements but you know if it's five times the price or something ridiculous yeah. like that right and then i'm like you know like for the for the potential marginal benefit there it's probably not worth it right whereas yeah. like your your creatine it's like 100 rand and you'll for a, you get for at least a month yeah for like a six that. yeah six month supply if you buy the, <laughs> the usn double pack yeah the, US, the usn double great, pack dude usn double pack is a blessing it's a blessing where's that and it's it's so cheap there's so much evidence, the most studied drug in any like sport of sports science. And we know it's safe, we know it's mm. effective, we know it's reliable. And the best thing is that the, the, the cheaper version, right? The monohydrate mm. is the one that has more evidence behind it. So I mean, there's the, what is it? It's the hydrochloride, I think. Is yeah, the, the HCL. Yeah, no, it's the like, second one. And it comes in like less... pills that are way more expensive. Oh no, it's exactly. terrible. So that's a great thing. Yeah. But um, okay, so I've, yeah, so I've evolved through several different iterations and currently it's as simple as possible with the aim of getting, I kind of have, have started to view any given day as its only function is to get, I can't remember, I never can remember if it's five or six things, but there are these five or six things really make the difference. And that is good sleep, exercise, meditation, deep work on something that I'm actually excited to do. Mm. And then some aspect of community or, or social relationship. Okay. You know, in a day possessing four out of those five or five out of was that five? I, yeah, that was five. That was five. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so so I've viewed the morning really now as its only function is to. Uh, I should have actually added the sixth is 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 eating well or okay. diet yeah. in general, nutrition. Yeah. So I wake up, I make my Aeropress coffee, and I usually so. I've started taking MCT oil uh, mm. recently and in the coffee. In the coffee or just a tablespoon on the side. It depends if I want to enjoy the coffee or just... Yeah, because if you're not blending it in, it doesn't uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't dissolve nicely. No, no. So once I've got my coffee made, um, I usually sit down and and, and read a book for a bit. This is still at like 6 a.m. or something. No, no, this is not that early. And so once I've uh, finished the first cup of coffee, I'll sit down actually and meditate. Okay. And I've actually, I originally had made it that my meditation was as simple as possible. I'm, re- I'm using Sam's, uh, Sam Harris's waking up app, do the daily meditation. And what I've recently, like most of this year, been doing is at the end of that meditation, I've been adding on sort of like a, a free form meditation. So I don't time it. I just kind of do until I feel like I'm ready to stop. And I try and do two or three things. If the guided meditation had me in like a really good space, I will try and continue in that vein for a bit. So, you know, if, if Sam is maybe asking you to look for the, the one who is looking to, to 
may quote that off said line. And, and if that seems to be quote unquote working for the day, I'll try and stick with that a bit and see if anything interesting happens. But if the meditation was maybe more frenetic than usual, uh, then my next go-to is, I've been trying to do like loving kindness meditation in the morning. It doesn't even have to be long. I mean, it might even just be like consciously wishing someone well. And I usually pick the person by like whoever comes to mind or you know someone that I've been thinking about or just someone I haven't been thinking about actually, inverting that. And then the last, the last thing I do, like just before I finish off and stand up and get the rest of the day going, is trying to just think of like a little bit of gratitude because I, I've tried this the, the gratitude habit before, and I know there's you know increasing evidence about its well-being benefits and you know feeling like your life is better and better. And what I noticed though was I originally tried just writing it down, and I realized that the writing it down wasn't good enough in terms of actually feeling it. You know, you actually, I think the benefit comes from feeling grateful, whereas it's, I could, I don't know, maybe I'm just too abstract in some of my thought, but I can write something down, not feel any emotional connection to that, and move on, and mm. then just, tick it off. It's just a mechanism, yeah. Exactly. Okay. And of course, the, the thing to mention here is then I'll intermittent fast until maybe three or four, mm-hmm. and then by that time, the rest of the day goes on, but that's now out of the morning routine. So on that intermittent fasting then, your coffee, I wanted to ask, so you, that's black coffee? Black coffee, yeah. Okay. I've been having coffee at work, and we have a really nice coffee machine yeah. that makes a beautiful flat white, and it's, it's <laughs> low-fat milk. Okay. So I know it's not the same as intermittent fasting. Right. But I'm like, low-fat milk is just, and it's, a, it's not a hell of a lot of it, mm. and it's mostly just like, you know, casein protein, really, if it's low-fat, yeah. you know, and a little bit of fat, which is like, not really, so. It's low-fat. Yeah, so yeah. I'm like, how, how much, like, so this is a thing that I, I definitely want to know. It's like, how, because there's people who literally don't even, they won't use toothpaste when they're, when they're fasting. They're fast, yeah. yeah. Like nothing can go, it, nothing can go in their mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Thanks children, calm down. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I'm like, what, what, what is the tipping point? And I think this is a common question and I think it's something that isn't like a research because it's fucking hard to research. It would be very um, So like, yeah, I think Session Pandas even like talked on this because um, obviously he's into the, the, the time restricted feeding yes. research. Um, and it's one of those things that's like, maybe, like, just mm. do what you think is reasonable and you'll get most of the benefit. That's but the thing. It's it? interesting that, so I, I think I'm potentially reconsider doing the, doing the black coffee thing, mm. at least until later in the morning, where I'm like, okay, the sort of like, a, like the, the window of value that you get out of, out of avoiding caloric input mm. is, is sort of closed. So what's the main value for you in, in like either time-restricted feeding mm. or in that, just that light coffee what is it that you're trying to get out of this? Yeah, the, the principal thing is the cognitive thing, and, right. I, and having milk in my coffee Have doesn't it. ruin that. In fact, okay. it means I have more coffees because they're tasty, yeah. and it means <laughs> I end up working even harder and better for, the, mo- for the most part. Um, I think I need to keep that, you know, the quantities of that under control. But in the, in, and that's probably why. It's like I can carry on doing that because the pr- primary benefit I'm still getting is that mm. I feel in the zone and I get into the flow state so easily in the morning. Whereas right. if I've had a meal, it's just a whole different ball game. That said, I think the research that looks into sort of giving your gut the opportunity to repair, which yes. only happens after about like 10 hours of not eating, right? Mm. So most people, it's like never happening because yeah. they, eat in the, they eat at night and then they eat first thing in the morning and you're still digesting the whole time. I think right. that secondary benefit, which is not a benefit you feel, but could mm. you know, potentially be 
quite significant in the future that then I'm going, okay, maybe, yeah, then I need to like not have, and maybe, and also it's like one coffee, you know, like, cause like as soon as you start putting in a whole bunch of stuff, now your gut's like, Hey, well, there's all this liquid coming through. Maybe we should like stop preparing and wake up and like, Mm. I don't know. So anyway, but that makes me want to ask you another question just on something you said there. So you spoke about the idea of things you're doing where you'll notice no immediate benefit, mm. but you just, you are predicting or anticipating maybe to yeah. use some rationalist vocabulary that in the future, there will be these large returns. Mm. What else are you doing in that vein? I mean, trying to solve the AGI, like alignment problem. <laughs> <laughs> shut up and do the impossible. Yeah, shut up and do the impossible. Exactly, yeah. But I mean, it's, it's totally one of those things. It's like, you know, medium probability of a massive potential gain. An okay example would be like quitting smoking for, for people, right? Because it's like most of the benefit that you get from quitting smoking is in the long term, not mm. in the short term. But that said, there's quite a bit of benefit in the short term and increasingly so, right? Because increasingly it's become like an antisocial behavior and, it's, and pe- people find it increasingly like disgusting and gross. And so you have immediate benefit just quitting smoking. Is that nicotine? Oh, it's nicotine, you could take in a giving patch, right? And yeah. then you're getting all the benefit of the cigarette with none of the, the detriment. But yet very few people do that, mm. which is a clear indicator that people, whereas a lot of people who don't drink coffee take caffeine pills. Interesting, yeah. But almost no one that I've, I've ever come across who doesn't smoke wears nicotine patches. Well, I have a friend who's very interested in nicotine patches. The only thing is they're expensive. They're not cheap. Yeah, it's, it's probably, it could, because caffeine pills are fucking cheap. Yeah, they're very, very I mean, cheap. We're just getting caffeine in powder form. Just snorting that shit. I mean, you, 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 the amount of caffeine that's in uh, sports supplements, like uh, like your your pre workouts and things, is ludicrous. Yeah, like three hundred milligrams for a single serving, and they're like take one to two servings yeah. twice daily. You know? I mean, people are then saying how this is the the best supplement. It's got the right mixture of carbs and protein. They just jacked off caffeine, yeah, right? Just, uh, yeah. And it's, and it's, um, Do you ever cycle off coffee or try and? I should, it? and I never appreciated how much I should until about a year ago. So what had happened was at the end of third year, we were moving house and we had had an espresso machine. And so there was always like, yeah, it was always like get up in the morning and you got all these boxes to move and you got like, you know, you're tired and whatever. So you're like, cool, let's go smash a little like espresso shot or make a little cappuccino or whatever. And it was like fine and it's the novelty of it. Mm. And I got very, very into it. And then at the start of last year, once you know, all the moving was done and whatnot, I just sort of like stopped having because I didn't think I had developed like a dependence. And uh, two days later, I couldn't figure out why I felt so horrible for like days on oh, end. Okay. And within 15 minutes of having a cup of coffee, it went right. away. After like two days of taking Panado and so like, like a little rash hydrate, it was, it was scary. I was yeah. like, oh my God, I'm, I have a chemical withdrawal. Yeah. I have chemical withdrawal of a stronger substance. What? Like, that's insane. It wasn't even the, the, mm. the habit. I didn't miss making the coffee in the morning. I'm, I, like, I had physical withdrawal, so that was very scary for me. And so since then, like for, for all of last year, I kind of just took one, like, one cup a day was my sort of thing that I allowed myself. And it was just like, a, I'll get around to cycling, weaning myself off eventually. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it was just like, like I, never, I'll, I was always just delaying it. So I was just like, there was damage limitations really. It was like, let me not get more addicted. But now it's gone to the point where I'm like having four cups of coffee yeah. a day. It's now getting to the point where I can have a cup of coffee at 6 p.m. and still fall asleep before midnight. Matthew Walker turns. Oh, dude. Oh, he's not in his grave yet. <laughs> he's not in his grave. Because <laughs> he sleeps so well. <laughs> That's why he's not in his grave. Exactly. No, I mean, I think he's most likely to die from someone getting angry when he says you should never drink caffeine or alcohol in the, in the afternoon. Right? Oh, yeah, I, I think I agree with him. So, um, yeah, look, in an ideal world, world i think at at 7 a.m 
an intravenous line would would inject caffeine into my bloodstream <laughs> and, and a humidifier would release the smell of roasting coffee into the room oh, okay. i'd wake up pumped and uh and, and i'd never think about coffee or stimulants or, or anything throughout the rest of the day okay. um i'd have a, an afternoon uh glass of wine <laughs> and, and allow it to work through my system by the evening and then have a perfect night's sleep for me what's interesting right is fi- is finding out about people's substance dependency so i mean mm. you know this is not a novel insight but i mean even just recently 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 in my life like chatting to a, a good friend someone who you know i would have thought i knew about and finding out that this person was using alcohol in like a very unhelpful way mm. not not currently but a, a year or, or two back and i just had no idea you know mm-hmm. and was it when you say in an unhelpful way as in it was it was being used as like a crutch for like social situations not or, even or I, i'm or? talking about the, you know this person actually admitting that you know their life at that point was so difficult that you know they were carrying around like the equivalent of a hip flask and yeah. they had, you know during the day when they were out just to just take the edge off their, their right. anxiety and their, yeah. and their, their feelings, yeah. Yeah, and, and this is a person I, would just, I wouldn't have expected it. And, yeah. and that speaks more to my failure of perception, but also to the extent that people can actually hide some really insidious behaviors. And maybe yeah. that's gonna move us towards the other thing that we spoke about talking about today, which was this disconnect and this loneliness yeah. that we're experiencing in society. Yeah, the classic example of, you know, the person committed suicide and everyone was like, but they seemed so happy and yeah. well, no one understands where this came from. And like, we suspect foul play even because yeah. the person always seemed to have it together. They had everything going for them. You know what I mean? It's like you, you hear all, all these cases and it's like, mm. A, it, having everything going for you might even be the, the opposite problem because then you go, why am I not happy if every, I've got everything going for me? Everyone else mm. seems to think I should be happy. Um, which is sort of like your, your sort of your Kurt Cobain instance, let's put it that way. And then you've got the the other effect, which is that it's just so easy for people to hide things because because A, I think people just are good at that. We, we learn to become good at that, at the way we've constructed the world, at, at hiding right. our vulnerabilities. But B, because people are just not connected to each other. People don't, like people aren't really seeing the other person and, and noticing the small little irregularities. Everyone's so busy and stuck in their own head that they're not paying attention. Do you think we've Maybe. gotten worse at that? I mean, do you think we were? Like, do you think we were ever good at mm-hmm. at that? Because I mean, people obviously will be very quick to point the, the finger at modern society and say we've no, disconnected, yeah. and that might be true. But do you think we were ever at a point where we were? No, I, I think. I mean, you know, people are like, oh, it's so bad. People are like, you wake up and the first thing they do is pick up their phone. I mean, they, mm. they, they can't sit down and have a meal without playing on their phone. Like people used to read the newspaper at the breakfast table, or you know, mm. and they used to get up in the morning and like. There was always something next to the bed to reach for, whether it was a book or. Oh, not always something though, don't you think? In the sense that, uh, let's talk like let's talk like a hundred and fifty thousand years ago. Yeah. So this is what I was going to say. In the ancestral environment, uh, you you knew like thirty people in a little like band of, and and you would spend four hours a day foraging for food and Mm. you know doing shit, and then the rest of the time you were listening to each other tell stories, and you were sitting around fires, and you were just chilling. And I, I don't know what people really used to do. It seems kind of boring but i suppose just a lot of social interaction and i suppose also there were like very few substances and things to get addicted so there weren't all these weird confounding factors that made things hard to you know understand it was kind of just like everything was one inferential step away you kind of were like oh this person seems not good and then you're like oh they ate those berries and then the berries must have given them stomach cramps and then Uh. you could like go oh they have stomach cramps don't sleep next to them because they might 
pass on. Yeah, you know, pass on yeah, all they might poo on you. <laughs> I don't know. There's that, that. No one had germ theory at that point. Um, maybe someone did. I don't know. Maybe, maybe someone did, and that, that idea one. died out. Because like, there were no books. For, for, all, for all we know, they were, they were just as like, cognitively capable as we are. They just didn't have the cognitive tools. You know, like they, they, mm. they, they were running the same hardware, just not the same explain software. That. I think we should explain that, because I think that might not be so... Bad to people. Yeah, yeah. As in, as in, yeah. So, so the best of our knowledge. Yeah, modern Homo sapiens, which is from 150,000 years ago or so, were anatomically identical to us, with the exceptions of they were probably quite a bit shorter, but as were people 300 years ago, just because the nutrition wasn't what it is today. But in terms of everything else, their brain capacity, their their capacity for emotions and suffering and social interactions you know we haven't had enough time to evolve away from that and so and we've kind of been curating our environments ever since then really mm. um, and so that that kind of artificially throws a spanner in the works of, of evolution but we haven't had enough time to evolve much more than not uh, uh, like lactose persistence is and it's na the natural state which most people aren't aware of is is being lactose intolerant yeah um, after after infancy when you stop essentially suckling you lose your, and this is true in all animals. Like people give cats like bowls of milk, and uh, wonder really why they get sick. diarrhea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you can maybe do it to a kitten potentially, but yeah. So the fact that we like humans can survive on like, a lot of humans in the Western world are, are lactose persistent, which means we've maintained the ability to be able to digest lactose is, mm. is a mutation. But like, there's that. And then there's, you know, maybe like a few things relating to maybe like eye color and hair color and skin color and, and those sort of things that have maybe like changed a bit. But for the, for the most part, we are, we're exactly the same as we were, just mm. better fed and lazier. Or I mean, maybe not lazier as in we do, we do less physical activity just because we don't have, we don't need to survive. And our, and our survival depends on what you can do sitting behind a laptop, not running chasing after animals but yeah so it's, it's a crazy idea like you you could have been back then and you could have like unlikely but through first principles deduced a whole lot of shit not yeah a, not a, not you know nothing that would wow anyone today but essentially like but you, you could, could have been like a really gone, good naturalist hey, maybe yeah hey maybe like maybe the reason why you get sick when you like eat food that's been near other people's um feces is because there's like little things there's in the feces. Things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whatever you called those little things. Mm. And you effectively have invented germ theory because you would now go, you would have a prediction that was, don't do that. And then you would do that and it would confirm or do not, you know, your yeah, hypothesis. Yeah. But that aside, how did we even get down this road? You know, I'm, I'm, I was just thinking about this. Oh, we're talking about modern society and do we think it's a new, a new thing that to people don't notice each other? So yes, I think essentially since we've had agriculture, let's go, mm. I think agriculture is probably the, the, the tipping point there because a lot changed in our world rapidly once agriculture came about. So we were probably optimized for our environment 150,000 years ago, but then, you know, when you get more to like 50,000 years ago, you know, everything to every, I mean, I don't know when, when the official like start date of the agricultural revolution um, is. I want to say 10,000 years ago, if I remember oh, oh, involved was it, Harari was it 10,000. Was it only, was that, that recently? You know, I mean, I'm, I stand to be corrected on this. So essentially, yeah, for like 140,000 years or something, we were, we were well adapted to our environment. And then I'm, I'm willing to bet there was probably no such thing as suicide to a large extent. There was probably like ritual practices of like older members of the group who got wandering off on their own to like die in the okay. wild, to not be a burden. I, I, I imagine there were things like that, but I'd be willing to bet that there wasn't this idea of I'm feeling unhappy and so I should end my existence mm. and, and then actually doing it. 
You know, I, I think mm. that's I think that's something we've 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 developed over time. Mm. That said, that's based on intuition, and I have no evidence for that. That's probably mm. something that'd be interesting to research. But yeah, so I think I think then when once you start having things like the agricultural revolution, you start having longer work days, then you start having you know moving into the industrial revolution now it's like long work days yeah, inside work days, there's regularity there's, routine. there's more people there's strangers for the first time really mm. you know that aren't necessarily enemies you can just find someone who's you're wearing the same uniform as you so they're on your side but you you don't know them and there's mind your own business gets invented i suppose yeah right the idea that you have personal information that's worth conserving or, or yeah or, or just as in that you don't share everything openly with every that you're like oh you're a stranger and i we can share space and we can work on common things and be in the same environment but choose to still act as though mm. we're not interconnected at all you okay. know which is an interesting thing potentially this is, you know, this is just conjecture yeah and so i think for the last 500 or so years at least in developed society where where, where people had access to books or you know if you were if you if you had a, if you were waking up in a bed i'm willing to bet there was there was something to distract you in the morning at the breakfast okay. table or, or something you know and and so i think i think that's in the ancestral environment we were probably able to notice things about each other but there wasn't a hell of a lot to notice by today's standards. Whereas now, there's all these possible factors, there's all these levels of inference mm. of, you know, people have a mysterious past when you meet them now, whereas they never <laughs> used to have that. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point, actually. And I think a lot of those kind of factors compound. So yeah, I, I don't think compared to 200 or 300 years ago, it was, it was much different. You know what's interesting, right? So, I mean, we've sort of spoken about, you know, stimulants and now about, you know, the way we can distract ourselves. I don't know if you've ex experienced this, but to me, people are stimulants. Uh, and that's, mm. that's almost so unnovel as to be just obviously true. But in the sense that you want to talk about things that can like, give this immediate injection of energy, just put the right kind of excitable person in a room with you and start having a conversation like first of all i mean i'm sure everyone is familiar with that that like electricity tension feeling if you're like looking across into someone's eyes or interacting with another human face that you know and that's some sort of evolutionarily conserved architecture right i mean strong eye contact is either like a, a mating signal and now i'm trying to like, i don't know where to look now but um <laughs> you know or, or it's like a, a dominance challenge right i mean Unless, you know, that maybe there's some subsidiary things. But for me, like, you know, you want to talk about a powerful stimulant. Just mm. get excitable people in a room together and start riffing ideas and, yeah. and, and telling stories. And, and for me, that's been such a potent one. You know, if I want to mm. get pumped up, just stick me with some, some interesting people. And mm. I'll be so raring to go. And, yeah. You know? What is interesting to note is that it's like it's very specific people in very specific modes of, of acting, though. Because right. if you think like, I don't know if you identify or sort of if your slider for extroversion, introversion, you know, where you sort of would place that for yourself for the most part. But I, I'd probably tend to be more on the side of an introvert. And so I find most like social interactions are energy draining. Interesting. Um, not that that's a bad thing. Yeah. But then certain ones are energy gaining, but they're very, very rare by comparison. Whereas I think people who are like much more in favor of uh, extroversion yeah. have the sort of opposite effect is that they find most social interactions you know give them energy whereas mm. there are a few that sap them and so I, I find that i have to be quite selective if i'm if i'm looking for to gain energy from a social interaction i have to be quite selective about how those interactions 
go down and with whom. Okay. Um, so I don't know how, what your what your thoughts are on that. It's just like, it's a very specific group of people I would assume that that give you that kind of effect. It's almost getting into like a group flow state. Yeah, that, so group flow is really interesting, and I think we should talk about that as well. But mm. I think there's been a, a change for me, and and the change came about because I spent a lot of um, the past few months thinking about how I relate to other people and and the the extent to which you know, the intrusion of my ego and my self-concern into you know, my relationships with people was um, either helping or hindering situations. And spoiler alert, it was mostly hindering things. So I used to be much more on the side of, there are one or two people whose input I really value. I get lots of excitement out of them, but I was cynical and unpleasant with most other people default. So I mean, you could call that default cynical and then occasionally yeah. excitable. And the mental switch that I tried to flip in the last few months, and I'm still actively trying, has been default, playful, and then occasionally, you know, you, you really don't have the energy. But even still, um, and I read a couple of interesting books on this, and one of them was, um, I still meant to actually write up a, a little Goodreads review, because it was so far off the, what would I call the, the well-worn track of things that you and I typically read and yeah. for most people who don't know us we have like a, a remarkable concordance in the things that we read and enjoy I mean you could plot this and get some sort of regression yeah, value okay, 100% yeah. a lot of correlation there right? and I read a few books on this and, and, and just taking this and, and default looking at people and trying to um, the, the key switch was trying to imagine people not trying, just imagining. There's an interesting distinction between trying and just doing. Do, yeah. um, looking at people as in possession of their own just personal narrative and rich internal experience, and trying to like see the wonder in that. You know, what I mean, everyone collectively gag at once so we can get this over with. I'm collective. I'm gagging into it. You know, the, the, I think one of our big failings is not having like a a way to uncynically speak about this set of topics right mm. i still struggle to say the word mindfulness without having this weird internal cringe and maybe yeah like the, the cash thoughts there are like new age and right? repulsion and, and yeah like because it's so often linked with crystals and yeah you know you yeah i'm just like thinking like, yeah. you know if if 20 percent of, of people listening hear the word mindfulness and the first uh image association is like Reiki or yeah, you know, oh crystal God, healing. Yeah. It's like, oh no, not what yeah. I mean at all, right? I suppose then they should go read like a, a Dan Harris book <laughs> uh, or, or a Sam Harris book. Just, re- just read a Harris book. Yeah, really, someone, really fun, yeah. you know. So, so that default playfulness idea mm. has, has had a large effect on the kinds of interactions I've been having. And it, it's brought out more energy in other people and they've reacted better. And, and I'm trying to like think about combating that cynicism, you know. Mm. Um, both the cynicism of not being able to talk about these things at all, right? Which for me just sort of feels like dragging your feet through the mud because, you know, everyone has these implicit associations with these kinds of ideas. Yeah. If you just say, like, life is playful. And I mean that when I think about that, right, my mental image is, is one of, I think someone who epitomizes this is, is, is Richard Feynman, right? Mm-hmm. He just epitomizes smart, thoughtful, no woo or bullshit, but found things just joyous yeah. in the sense that they were just interesting, right? Yeah. You know, always doing an experiment, testing some hypothesis, right? having a bet, exactly. getting up to mischief. And isn't yeah. that just like what makes things fun? You know? mm. I, so I'm trying to cultivate more of that. 
And, and doing that has brought out this remarkable change in people who I thought were otherwise uninteresting. Mm, and that's been interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's very, very cool. Yeah. Because yeah. they start feeding off you. And so right. they, they, the interesting side of them comes out. You get a positive death spiral. Can you have a positive death spiral? Yeah. A life spiral? Life? I suppose that would be a... Um, a fertility what? cult. <laughs> <laughs> Coming back to your idea of... of uh, of cash thoughts. Okay, cash thoughts. Because, uh, and, and, and talking about like your, your cash thoughts with terms like mindfulness and like yes. joyfulness and whatever are, are, are just cringy. Is what do you, how do you then feel about people creating words? So um, this is an interesting project that a few people are aware of, but it's it kind of died out a little, which was um, the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. I, don't know if I remember know. that. Yes. Yeah, a few years ago it was very popular. Um, and essentially it was, a, I think, a guy trying who would do you know quite like a, a poetic type person would come up with made up words to describe phenomena so you know like you've got things like schadenfreude which is the german word for like uh, relishing someone else's failure um, and like german's amazing in terms of having words like that they've got like single words that describe whole emotions but mm. uh, the dictionary of obscure sorrows was an attempt to do this um for the english language to a greater extent because the english language is a rich vocabulary but you know, we miss like single words to describe a lot of phenomena that, that we all observe. And so it was a, you know, this two-pronged experiment. But the one that always just stuck out to me was uh, one called Sonder, so S-O-N-D-E-R. Okay. Um, and the definition here is, the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own, populated with their own ambitions, friends, routines, worries, and inherited craziness. An epic story that continues invisibly around you like an anthill sprawling deep underground with elaborate passageways to thousands of other lives that you'll never know existed, in which you might appear only once, as an extra sipping coffee in the background, as a blur of traffic passing on the highway, as a lighted window at dusk. Which is you should read audiobooks. Of, <laughs> this this is audible. <laughs> I don't know why I never that guy. Like, that guy is like a, like a most like <laughs> advert ready voice, but it's just it's I don't know. I suppose it, now you can't change it because it's set up to prime everyone to. Uh, yeah, I think there, there is that element of it. And Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Audible, give us money, <laughs> <laughs> please fund. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's uh, but yeah. So so that that that's that idea of like you know we see all these people on the street and you walk past them and uh, you know they they're just characters in our own personal solipsistic narrative but mm. you can stop and Sound think like and Peterson, right? <laughs> but the point i was getting to was that yes. but you can stop and actually go every single person that you see around you feels the exact same way you are an extra to them just as they were an extra to you mm. when they walk past you and you may never see them again like that that idea of there is another self behind the you know the windows being the eyes you know like eyes are the windows to the soul mm. which is another cached little gag of, of uh, new ageness but it, it right. but, but it's 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 true in the sense that we are we've evolutionarily selected for using eye contact as a cue for noticing the existence of another person as a environmental pressure to be be able to empath, uh, empathize which is super important to our ability to survive because of you know being able to cooperate as a group and yeah. to and, and to function together as the number of relationships grows which humans are pretty uniquely good at and so yeah i think i think that's a it's a very powerful thing but yeah so like sonder is, is you know that's now the shorthand to describe that and I, I think it's great if words like that can catch on because you know we live in a time with the internet where you can invent, invent terms and they can catch on and we you know we can we can create the vocabulary and once you have the vocabulary now mm. we don't have to explain that whole idea to someone if, if they if they now are aware of sonder you can just go 
I'm feeling in a sonderful mood now. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm very aware of the existence of other people as as souls, as as entities where there's there's something going on behind the eyes that feels just as I feel when I look at everyone else. Because mm. otherwise, the rest of the time we exist purely in our own heads, in our own narratives, in our own stories, in which you know we're the main character. Everyone else is just an extra. Yeah, I think. So there's something there that triggers another question for me, which is, I think part of that realization that for everyone else, you are the extra, you are not the central character. And you know, that is just opposed to everything we have direct evidence of, right? I mean, you've got your whole life believing you're the central character and some people will, right? I mean, maybe some people will realize that they are extras to everyone else and only central in their story. And it makes me think about what I would call things that are difficult to accept, but true, okay. right? Um, and maybe there's a, a word for that in the dictionary of obscure sorrows, but I, I wanted to almost ask you, like, what are some things that you like? Okay, so we can even take the rationalist lens on this. Things which you you almost find these internal barriers to to accepting as true. You know, you either notice that mm. you can't find your can't bring yourself to say the thoughts out loud, or you tentatively touch it and turn away because you don't like the implications. Um, I'll give an example, maybe just to see yeah. the question. So for me, like really something difficult to acknowledge uh, and to acknowledge as, as, as likely true is that no matter what I do, it is extraordinarily unlikely that any of it will matter in 150 years. Interesting. Okay. Like even Jeff Bezos's great, 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 great grandchild is unlikely to know his name. You know, even for Mr. Bezos himself. Yeah. And so, you know, you can just extrapolate the way downwards and it's just unlikely that anything I do will matter in 200 years kind mm. of thing. Uh, well, even unless, if I made a really... Unless, unless we're still all, alive. Unless be alive yeah. that we'll leave that issue aside for now. But I just, I, I bring that up as something which, I mean, even I found myself thinking about this like a week ago and thinking, geez, you know, if, if my life goal is to do something, you know, because I mean, I would say that I'm generally trying to think of ways which I could have a bigger impact, but then just realizing that it's so unlikely that what you do, you'll be remembered for. So that gives the obvious realization that, okay, being remembered can't be the goal. Then you could say, well, maybe my goal is impact. But then you say, well, likely as not, in fact, far more likely, even you won't make an impact that will be important in you know 100 years. So really then what I had to accept here, just to close the loop on this, um, was that really what I'm trying to do is find useful and interesting and you can even go back to playful uses of my mm. attention that are having some near-term social good and long-term where, where long-term refers to really the space of a human lifetime i'm going to agree with you and disagree with you right because there's the yeah. there's the the natural agreement is like yeah so there's you're not going to be remembered most likely you know yeah. very very few people are and you know if the, the billions of humans that have ever existed and like mm. how many historical figures you know you after you know 300 years back do you know and i've heard of them or know what they actually did right um and so that's definitely a thing um and yeah and it's it's very difficult to have a, a huge impact on the world that you'll be remembered for mm. um, so memory and, can't and, be the variable well yeah and, and yeah leaving a legacy is probably i mean that's kind of what gets uh, touched on in uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck right which is this idea Smart of Madison, like, right? yeah um right. humans trying to uh to, to create legacies for themselves and uh and then when they you know often fail to they just become totally miserable right and so like mm. a lot of what we do is not because we want to do it it's because we want feel like we want to have like a, you know make some kind of dent that will be remembered for it's like uh the idea of having your your name up on all the achievement boards at school 
Yes. But but you don't remember a single other name that was on those boards. You just like know that oh I got my name up on that one. Like it's it's this dumbest thing, right? It's yeah. Like, it's very motivating at the time, but it's kind of empty. Mm. You know, like you now you're like oh I was the top academic, but you've benefited from that because you you spend time learning and enhancing and mm. studying outside of the syllabus and it propels you to go to university and all of that's there too. Not because. You, it was actually important to be, to on, the be on the board, right? Right. Um, or for sports or whatever it may be. Okay. Um, so, so there's not a... But I will also disagree with you in yeah. the sense that... Because it can, you can very easily lead yourself into this sort of nihilistic, just like, okay, well, then there's no point to anything. Um, so I think having a local impact is important. Um, yes. People around you, you can minimize suffering for people around you. You can improve things. You, and, and you can bring a lot of joy to yourself and your own yeah. life and a lot of meaning there. And that's great. I mean, that's almost the... Uh, the uh, existentialist or absurdist sort of uh, response to the nihilist mm. in, in saying I, I mean I, I agree with that right? yeah so, I, I... so so that is hugely valuable but I will also say and, and this is an idea that I, I it really kind of just occurred to me like I connected the the synapses to unite ideas in this moment of, of listening to you speak which is that you may not be remembered for things but because of exponential or compounding like interest right compounding mm. growth a one percent improvement in something that affects some things around you now might actually lead to like hundred times benefits in the future, but no one will remember the one you for the one percent impact, right? Yes. We'll just be like we'll look back and go, Oh, humanity started like doing this thing and that led to it. Where would we be today mm. without that? Like like let's say you talk about like science, right? And you're like, Well now we have science today and that's you know been a huge force multiplier for mm. humanity. But no one remembers like the one scientist who instead of like faking results instead re-ran the experiment and did the statistical significance test and was like, oh no, this isn't statistically significant, so yes. we're not gonna publish that we're gonna publish that it isn't statistically significant. And so as a result of that, people didn't explore down this path and that led to a whole bunch of things and like you know, was enough to just tip the balance in favor of the kind of science we have today as opposed to some other kind of like woo or, you know, like no one remembers the one guy who switched from being a, um, so what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the guys who try to turn lead into gold. Uh, alchemist? Yeah, the alchemist. No one remembers like the one alchemist who switched to being an actual chemist. I think you can't say the alchemist because then Paulo Coelho an ultimately pretty mediocre book oh shit <laughs> um, I haven't read it so no, no I don't know it just, it just it triggered lots of, of cash thoughts of new agey type mm, stuff yeah, like, but wait yeah. too much of a tangent too much of a tangent <laughs> yeah the point being so no one's going to remember that like one alchemist instead switched to being a chemist but that may have been just enough to tip the balance in favour of things that led to us like discovering like you know organic chemistry and now mm. we have that today and it's like underpins all of our modern medicine and mm. genetics and everything so I will say that you can still have and I think most people who try to have an impact on the world actually probably do, but it's it's something that is like a compounding thing mm. down the line. It's like the guys working on the research behind prime numbers 300 years ago Weren't were the pariahs of the day, right? right? People were like, what are you, you're fucking wasting your time. And they probably even thought that as well, but they just kind of found it interesting. Yes. But yet pursuing that as opposed to just, you know, being nihilists and sipping coffee and waiting to die <laughs> was uh was super <laughs> beneficial because now all of modern like cryptography is built on yeah and, and it's and it's and, and we're and using it now as we speak like mm. you know encryption is is absolutely essential uh yeah. and, in our in our modern world and the study of 
of uh, of number theory that, that went into that is, is essential. Um, and so, yeah, that that's a, that's an example of. I mean, and, and that was you know a big research, but any kind of marginal like one percent difference now can compound in both the positive and the negative directions. You have to also be very careful about things that might have the negative yes. you know, compound compounding effects. negatives are yeah are, 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 are even more dangerous, right? But yeah, so I, so I will agree with you in saying that yes, having a local impact is important and that's yes. a good reason to, to find motivation. But also you can have a huge impact on the future with 1% changes now. And like one should never underestimate that in the same way as like one little tiny habit can lead to another and another and have a cascading effect in one's life. You can have that beyond your own lifespan. It sounds to me like what you're trying to say is that if a, if a researcher flaps his p-values in Brazil, it can lead to a... A cascade, a typhoon of significance yeah, it's in a, Miami. It's a, <laughs> it's a, yeah, a weird version of the butterfly effect. Yeah. Um, but it's through space and time, or, or primarily through time. Yeah. Through <laughs> space and time. <laughs> yeah, okay, I, I like that. I, I think a lot of effective altruism is, is pretty. Yeah. Like for me, the most, like some of the most compelling ideas in effective altruism are the idea that in terms of the long term future of a humanity, to use a bit of a cash thought here, mm. um, the idea of humanity's cosmic endowment, the, the idea that a small amount, a small donation today, that you know, you don't know what the you call them, what are they called, positive black swan outcomes. That just like by you know, if if your donation was the tipping point that that moved humanity over into having the requisite knowledge or wisdom or technology that got yeah. us to have trillions of people populating a galaxy-wide flourishing civilization, then yeah, that tiny little marginal improvement they just exponential results so yeah. yeah that's why i find the, those concepts so compelling and yeah and, and if, you, if you start looking at um like i suppose i think it's uh, pedro domingos who, who looks at the whole world as, as s curves right like uh, activation functions yes. essentially and it's like if you zoom in at different levels some of them they look linear some of them might look exponential but if you zoom out it's always an s curve in other words you know it's very slow going at the start and then everything kind of like rapidly accelerates and happens all at once and, and there's this big change and then it sort of tapers off again and yeah the, when you're at the cusp of the activation function the smallest change will move things in the in the, in the other direction and you never know where that small change is and so every bit contributes to that in a way and and it's a different thing to saying like every drop counts in saving water and every vote counts because yes. because like every vote counts yes but like you, when you're talking about like the, the, the votes get like rounded you know the, the vote percentages get rounded off and if you talk about rounding to one decimal place you're talking about like thousands of people's votes that like effectively don't count but in this case it's much more like saying you know every last pebble that you throw on a like a, a potential landslide counts like those yes, the more the more pebbles way. you add the more each one counts Right. Whereas yes. in, in other systems, that's not true, um, mm, mm. or not not in the way we it's conventionally used. So that that cached idea of you know everything every vote counts, that doesn't motivate a hell of a lot of people. This is slightly different. It's that the, the like the closer you are to the tipping point, the more minuscule the contributions need to be to actually keep progress going. So do you want to give a bash at trying to answer? Are there any difficult truths that you like? Um, I think the the Eliezer Yadkowski's one is just 
do not flinch you know what is true is already true so yeah what do you what do you find yourself maybe trying to flinch away from are there mm. any truths like that for you maybe not so many major ones i don't know maybe i'm just not a, a, like aware of them yet or that they will come the, the points of, of realization well, but there are a lot of times where i'm i become aware that i'm deluding myself and i try very hard to like you know take responsibility for that and mm. uh, and, and not do it so it's probably like there are a lot of like frequent ones on a, a weekly basis at the very least that tend to occur. So I'm trying to think of like a good example because like none, there's no major ones are, are jumping to mind right now. That's not to say that they don't potentially exist. Like like a, a, a lot of like is justifying things, right? So like I'll, I'll sometimes like justify to myself like, oh, I, I, I need this fancy mouse for for work, you know, because it'll make me so much more effective <laughs> and you know, because I might get a, a repetitive strain injury. Yeah, so there's a few things like that where I'll be like, I almost like justify it to myself that like I need this like piece of hardware or this the software tool that is mm. proprietary and I need to pay for or, or isn't or just requires time to configure and learn about, you know, which is another kind of investment. Mm. And I will sort of make excuses for why I need this thing and how I have to have that before I can be effective or why I deserve that thing. When I actually, mm. a lot of the time, I think that's, I'm making up reasons because I would just think it's just shiny. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I might still get the thing, but if I'm at least honest about the fact that it's like, oh, that, I, I want that keyboard because it feels nice to type on, not because it will make me more productive. You know, maybe it'll make me more productive because it feels nice to type on. That's 100% a potential thing, but at least I must be honest about that. And I, and I find there's a lot of things in my life where I'm like, Oh, um, I've been I've been training myself too hard lately and not having enough protein, and so I should take a day off and uh, or make like a, pro- a different kind of meal or whatever. As opposed to just like, man up, get to the gym. <laughs> no excuses. Take rest days, but not today. Like, you know the kind yeah. of Jocko like thing. So there's obviously a balance point. Like you shouldn't go to the gym and put in like PB deadlifts when you have the flu. Probably that's not. probably ill-advised, right? But. At the Unless same time, you're David Goggins, in which case it probably makes yeah, you stronger. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Right. Um, <laughs> if you're taking rapamycin. <laughs> yeah, like, but there's a lot of times when it's just excuses. And, and the smarter you are and the more cognitive um, distortions and, and biases you know about, mm. the easier it is to make yourself think that those excuses are legitimate. Because you're like, oh, but I know about all these biases and this doesn't fit the patterns of any of those. Ooh. And a lot of the time it actually does. You've just kind of like done a quick scan of your immediate cash. Um, yeah. You haven't actually done five minutes by the clock of, of thinking about it. Um, and, and, and yeah, and then there's the bias blind spot, which is I think why having other people check you is so useful. I mean, this is why I think things like yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy or any kind of therapy or even just talking about it um, mm. in air quotes with someone can be so valuable is because it becomes immediately obvious when you, because when you're sitting with another person talking, you're both seeing them through your eyes and seeing yourself through their eyes. And I think that's part of why we like have a self is like we can run simulations of other selves and then like, it, like extrapolate what they're thinking about us, which is a necessary thing for survival. Mm. So when you're doing that, you suddenly become aware of how another person is seeing you. And then all these things you're saying, you see them from that third party perspective and go, oh, that's, that's a cognitive distortion or like that's an obvious bias. Um, even if they're not saying anything, just having someone listen to you, but the actual real person who can, who's there judging you mm. almost is so valuable because it suddenly makes it impossible for you to, to just see it from inside your own head. And obviously you can't always have a person there to, to like, you know, talk about every possible cognitive distortion you might be blind to. Mm. 
but that's why running simulations in your head or having voices, characters in your head can be a useful, uh, a useful like workaround for some of the small stuff. But yeah. for the major stuff, it's absolutely undeniably valuable to red team with another individual. Mm. I think like for me, I, I class that general idea of you know, when you rationalize uh, things you make excuses like for me that just falls under the broad label of self-deception mm. which has been something that I think is just so worth rooting out from the perspective of first of all it's it's really useful I think to be able to come to trust yourself more in terms of knowing that you give a reason and it's actually the reason you know and, and watching out for that that ability to self-deceive mm. and you know, I've just, I've just come to see that like this ability to routinely deceive ourselves, to convince ourselves of reasons where there are none or where they are actually just ugly and you don't want to look at them from a surface level so you invent a nicer version. You know, this whole idea of like telling yourself a story about your past and your future and what it's going to be like, what it has been like and using that for just all kinds of, I mean, nefarious make this sound like it's all planned, but more, less than optimal, right? Less than wholesome if you want to. But it seems like our hardware is set up to do that mm. like it's 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 the natural state is to self-deceive yeah so where do you think so for you okay uh, yeah you you said something there about this the sense of self right so maybe we can first just give a, a couple word explanation of what we mean there mm. um we both fairly familiar there but then also i, I want to hear from you where you think that arises from yeah and i'll, I'll give you my take on that yeah because um, i think okay. um there's there's combinations there mm. so so what is the sense of self I mean, a I, lot I, of people disagree. Yeah, I mean, unless they've a, heard. It, this is more disagreed on, I think, than the definition of AI or of the, of the definition of intelligence, right? But right. I like Sam Harris's definition, or at least one of the sort of shorthands he uses, which is this experience of what it feels like to be me, a thing thinking. The you thinker know, of thoughts. Yeah, the thinker of thoughts. Like the, the, the experience of being inside your own head and body mm. and being aware of that existence and of having thought. Something along those sort of lines. And so, yeah, so I, I think that's about as much as one should define it for the purposes of this kind of discussion. You know, anatomically or, you know, electrically it might be something else or, you know, it's at some kind of emergent, which I use with Ooh, caution, yeah. um, <laughs> sort of uh, property of, of like, like, is it just a question of scale or is it a question of like having a complicated enough brain and the chemistry that goes on in it um, or mm. what it is, but it's unlikely to have been there unless it serves some purpose or unless it is a so symptom like of appendix. something that serves a purpose. So I mean, but, so but the appendix supposedly did, did serve a purpose. Yes, and not in like uh, different animals. Oh, sure, yeah, and then it's and, and then it's, it's conserved in us. Yeah. So that, that would actually be an interesting thing to think about. So you know, is the self this remnant of some earlier stage in our evolution that is now there? And I don't think that's the case. I think it's the opposite. I, you know, so in the sense that I would say, so with the appendix, right? What happened is our ancestors, and when I say our ancestors, I'm not talking about like other humans or other hominids. I'm, yeah. like, I'm talking about you know. I mean, even before yeah, other yeah, mammals, apes, right? Yeah. I mean, these are just a a mammals who, what was it used for? It's a specific type of digestion, mm. you know, in some way that cows well, like, have all kinds of different yeah. uh, ruminant compartments. Yeah, like four stomachs to try and digest all the things that mm. they eat. Yeah, so it, it had some sort of, it, it like stored certain kinds of bacteria to digest or like it was like yeah. i don't know we, we can look at, but the point is it's irrelevant it's a it's a vestigial organ now yes. we don't we don't need it yeah it's just it's just conserved because yeah it's, or like the tailbone like we yes. still have a tailbone even though we don't have tails mm. or any like need for a tail right so here's my intuition on thing and this isn't like you know obviously partially informed by things i've read but it's it's not 
from anyone that I can think. It's just kind of my okay. synthesis and my gut feeling. Yeah. My gut feeling is that there's consciousness and then there's like the sense of self, right? So the co consciousness is kind of like the slider of just like being aware of stimulus or stimuli rather. And as you increase that slider, you become more aware of being ex like existing in the present, right? So you maybe look at like something like a, a bacterium doesn't have it, it's, it just responds mechanically almost to stimuli mm -hmm. and then as you sort of move the slider up you sort of get like you, you know your sort of uh, fish and things like that and then you move it more and you get like your mammals where you know like a dog is, is probably like quite aware it's like, it, like it's aware that it's experiencing that, the world yeah it's, it's like aware so, that there's so, a thing there and it's aware that there's like temperatures and stuff like that Right. As opposed to the bacterium, which there's a temperature gradient or a nutrient gradient, yeah. and it binds to a receptor. You could just you could just model it with a simple equation, and maybe you can model the greater levels of consciousness with a more complex equation. That, we that, just haven't thought of it yet, but but it, there's definitely like a slide. Something changes, right? And then at some point, you move the slider over enough, and then it starts becoming like aware that like aware that you're aware of stuff yeah, and that's being like aware that there's thoughts right but then i think there's that's consciousness and that's kind of a slider spectrum and then on top of that because uh, because at the sort of the far end of the slider you sort of get like a awareness that time exists right so like most animals probably don't have that they're just like in the their present but humans we spend most of our time thinking about the past and the future and being aware of the fact that that exists not the current moment which mm. is why mindfulness is so useful anyway that's consciousness then i think on top of that is this other thing which is the sense of self okay which is rooted in being conscious because you have to be conscious and being aware of your thoughts to be able to like go oh there's a thing there that's experiencing the stuff but i think that is like a model of the entity doing the modeling that is useful in allowing it to interact with other entities and so I think the sense of self sits atop consciousness and it's a thing that likely emerged as a result of being able to cooperate in groups better. Okay. Because now it's this model of the thing that's doing the compute. It's like the computer's aware that the computer exists and it's factoring itself into its calculation. That's and a good way to view it. Actually. Yeah, so it's like, it's, it's, it's allowing you to model yourself, which is useful because it allows you to estimate how others are modeling you. Because mm -hmm. we're modeling all the others which we can do because we can observe them and like make predictions about them and fact them in. But yes. if you're factoring yourself into the equations as well, suddenly your like game theoretic like potential goes up, right? Because if you're modeling the system of three people, but one of them's you and you're only modeling the other two, you're gonna your model is, be is pretty shit, right? right? Especially you... if you're talking about like conflict, right? Because now mm -hmm. you're suddenly not considering the fact that they can gang up against you you're gonna die right whereas if you now model that you exist and you can behave in the way that allows you to gang up on the other third party or to make some alliance with the group of you well that's fantastic right you can suddenly be aware of a, there's only a social interaction if there is some kind of self so i think like maybe some animals like dogs and certainly some of the apes probably do have an idea of a self do they? Like, so, um, that's... Like, so like so like the example of like a dolphin like a dolphin can be aware that you've put something on it because it can go and check it out in the mirror okay and it can, mm. it can like, it can respond in ways that shows that it, it, it like, oh, it's cool, I've got this thing on my fit. And it will identify that as, as it. As it. Right? So it's, it's self-aware at the very least, whether yeah. it's modeling itself in social interaction. But it seems that they could be doing that if, you know, they can have recreational sex and they can have complex social structures. It seems like maybe there's a self there, maybe a more primitive version. Okay. Um, and I think that like, these self-deceptions and these stories and things that we tell ourselves are either a symptom or a lower level cause of that sort of self. And so, you know, we tell ourselves these stories because our goal is to keep a coherent self uh, in, in our model, right? So to, to have a good model of what we think of as self 
that matches the, the stimuli and matches the model of the rest of the world. And we try and keep that updated and consistent so that we can survive. And it's like a, a survival imperative. At least that's how it's, 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 man, it's emo- mm. And that would be my sort of intuition. And so that's why when things challenge our sense of self, when things challenge your, your identity, then like, that breaks people. Like if, if I go and challenge your beliefs about some, some niche aspect of like quantum mechanics, like it's weird enough already. You have like a vague idea about it. And I, like, I can totally invert your expectation. And you can be like, oh, okay, cool. And you can yeah. just handle that fine. But if I like challenge something core principle of your identity, like I'm actually like, actually, you're not, you're actually not a smart person or mm. you're not a nice person or something like that. When that was your identity or like, you know, a lot of people like their career becomes their identity and then like something happens to them or they're suddenly not as good at their career or some technology comes that, you know, makes them redundant and they fall apart. Mm. And I think that's a result of we it's a survival imperative to have this consistent internal model of the self of what we are to fit into our models of the world. And when things deeply challenge that, it requires us to fundamentally rebuild our whole belief network. But that's just my intuition. Yeah, it's a a lengthy intuition. I mean, most of this is just connecting the dots in a way that seems reasonable, which which may be uh, leading me to untruth, but that's at least how the dots seem to connect given what I do know. I think, so I mean, I think you covered a lot there, uh, and particularly the, the connection of modeling yourself and that experience of it though. So often, you know, when I like, speak to other people about this idea of, no, 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 like, I want to try and lose the sense of the self, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, I mean, it, it's probably useful at this point just throwing out all the various synonyms you can use here. You know, there's the sense of self, the I, the ego, identity. Even I just find like the distinction observer and observed mm. is, a, is a useful one. And um, there's lots of good examples or online of people explaining this distinction. So I don't know, we'll do, I don't think we'll be able to do a better job of explaining this or pointing it out to people than those. So uh, Robert Wright's book, Why Buddhism is True, does a good treatment of this. Now, in terms of the why would it be a good thing to lose that sense of self in the first place? A lot of people say, you know, like I mean, I've had um, conversations with people who say, well, if I lose my sense of self, won't I lose everything that makes me, me? Some people say, if I lose my sense of self, won't I lose my motivation and my drive? You know, some people say, if I lose my egotistical sense of wanting, because I mean, a lot of what people speak about with the sense of self is this idea of clinging towards the pleasurable things and having aversions towards mm. un- displeasurable things, right? And so they say, well, if I wasn't perpetually trying to prevent bad things from happening and if I wasn't pre- perpetually trying to run after good things, well, surely no good things would happen in my life. And I mean, I, I have like a couple of different ways that I, I think about that, but I'm not sure, like, I mean, would you say that for you, like actively trying to root out the sense of self is a project that you're engaged in or is it something that is at the moment not so important or maybe something you want to do down the line? Yeah, I'd say it's not uh, like it's not a top priority for me um, mm. right now. I think it's an interesting t- thing to play with and be aware of in social interactions. But I think it may actually be important as in I think if you were to lose a sense of self in a social interaction, the nature of the social interaction would change in certain ways that may not make it ideal for like the Socratic method or some others because being aware of the self and and being aware of the other and modeling those two allows you to make certain predictions and, and, and you know, uh, follow certain courses of action that can get you towards some goal. But if you now don't have that sense of self, it seems like that is now at least fundamentally different, if not impossible. That said, I think it could be very useful, right? So like, just because it's persisted out of a survival imperative doesn't mean that's something we would choose to preserve 
going if, forward. If it had started today, <laughs> if we'd been living without the sense of self, and now suddenly someone imposed this on our consciousness, it's yeah, it's it's, it's kind of weird, right? And that's a really useful way to think about a lot of things, right? It's like if if we'd exactly. never invented religion, and now some madman came and told us, no, there's actually a man in the sky. Yeah, but we had all like imagine if we had all of modern science and all that. Yeah, it's a very useful well, way to so imagine. Like, it's an interesting one. Is like eating. Like if we if we transcend our biological need to eat, would would we keep eating? Are there aspects of eating that we want to preserve? Hmm. And what are those? And why do we want to preserve them? Do we want to preserve them because we think it's weird to not have them? Do we want to preserve them because we are evolved so, like, it, it's so linked to our psychology and the way we've evolved that it would seem alien to not have that, but we could get rid of or want to have it as well? Mm. Like, what, what do we choose to keep? Like, do we, do we throw out everything we know about culinary science and, like, what it is to enjoy food and have fine cuisine? Or, or do we, like, just keep that in the archive somewhere, but now <laughs> we just live in space and we have no need to eat and we never die. You know, like, like what things would we choose to keep that are fundamental to being a human now and linked to our biology, but aren't necessarily things you need? Mm. So it's an interesting one because, like, mm. even just on eating, keep it you know bounded to stuff that everyone's very familiar with and, and and does every day, and it already becomes like a hard one to answer. Like, would we keep that around? Because we take pleasure in eating sometimes, often, <laughs> often, <laughs> basically. Um, but like, if you turned off all the reward mechanisms. You wouldn't, and then yeah. If you were brought up never eating, it would seem like the weirdest thing ever. Like sleeping as well, right? I mean, yeah, lying down vertically for a couple of hours. Yeah, if our if our brains didn't need horizontally, yeah, lying down vertically. <laughs> he's, he's Batman. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if 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 you uh, if you didn't need to sleep, if we could perfectly maintain, I mean, it's a biggest waste of time ever. Mm. Then I want to go back to I, I sort of I disagree a little bit in terms of. So my, my intuition on why it's useful as a project to try and root the self out, mm. and I'm not sure, I'm kind of agnostic as to whether you can truly lose that sense permanently, yeah. but I do think, so when you read about this, right, you read, you can read different kinds of books from all kinds of different sages and mystical people and through the ages, right? And the, one of the sort of more consistent themes that at least I've noticed is the sense that Losing the sense of self isn't this gradual idea, right? You hear Sam Harris say this often. Uh, Douglas Harding, Sam Harris references, says the same thing. Jiddu Krishnamurti says the same thing. Rumi, all these like, spiritual sort of sages say the same thing, that the idea of losing the sense of self can be done immediately. Mm. And so for me, the reason I find that interesting is that you are almost, you're never further than one single step from that loss. Mm. And so, to address the concern that if I lose that sense of self, won't I be losing all volition? In my experience, at least, I mean, I'm not claiming to have had like strong loss of self, but I, I, I will claim to at least have experienced something in that direction, which I would count as at least personally significant. And my experience of it in a social situation, right, where you were asking, you know, would it be helpful, is that the only difference in, in the conversation was that I just found myself, my head at least, had shut up for once. Okay. So... You know, I mean, we're sitting here, we've been having this conversation for over an hour now. And through at least most of it, right, there is trying to listen to what you're saying, but also then thinking about what I'm going to say next. Mm. Right? And thinking about the things that the other person's saying and like, there's like multiple threads going on. And also thinking about, and what, and when I say my thing, what will he think about it? Will it sound smart? Will it, mm. you know, and these are, you know, very small thoughts in the sense that you, know, you might not even notice that, but, but it is there. And there, there's like this, it sort of seems to cloud my I'm going to use vision as mm. the metaphor here just because it, it, sound, it just makes more sense to me. Right. So, at least in my experience, losing that or at least dissociating from it somewhat mm. 
all it seemed to do was make everything easier. It was like there was just less self-concern, uh, which would make sense, okay. right? Yeah. And so I don't know, I didn't experience this lack of volition. I almost experienced it as very freeing. It was okay. it's like you could just sit there and hear what the other person was saying and you responded. And, and the distinction was that, I mean, you were still making as much sense as I tend to make, as much that is, <laughs> but it was like there was no screening of those words before they came out. There was just speaking. Mm. And uh, I there's like a there's a freedom to that, there is, yeah. which was okay. which was interesting. Mm. I have I have two interesting thoughts. On okay, this. Hit well, me with that. I think they're interesting. <laughs> um, let's find out. Your sense of self is Let's throw them into the ring and see how they do. Hit it. The first thought being that yeah, so I I totally see the value of that as an exercise as a project, mm. even if it's just because it's hard. So in the same way that like. Fasting, even biological, you know, benefits aside, just like the the, act, the the discipline of it and what you realize about why we eat and why we need to eat and why we feel the way we do about eating is a useful exercise mm. or sleeping on the floor or any like kind of like stoic practice. I think understanding, like exploring what it's like to not have the self there in a conversation and therefore finding out what the self brings or mm. like why we need it or if we need it is a very useful exercise so a and, and pursuit, right? So I think that's very useful and just like fasting and all of these things are the things I want to explore but it's not necessarily the priority. That's my first thought. So yes, I totally see the value of the, and of I wanna, the exercise. I want to come back to that idea of yeah. like all the things we do by default. Like mm. Just try live without them for like yeah. even a few days. Exactly. Like, for exploring that. And then the second one is to kind of go, okay, cool. So, you know, we're thinking about stuff while we're talking and we're thinking about thinking about that stuff and, and whatnot. And yeah, it might be great to be able to switch off the self and just like be, but in the same way as you kind of um, are able to, and you don't switch off the self, but like, let's say, let's say when you, you've taken some kind of substance that's uh, psychoactive and now you're having a conversation with someone else who's done the same. Right. So that's a so very, like you've taken a psychedelic, the person's taking a psychedelic. Yeah, any kind of psychoactive substance. So, or, or, or anything. So, like it can be anything from alcohol, marijuana, uh, LSD, whatever it might be. Right? So you say just, just you've taken something that changes substance. the way you're perceiving. So it's it's, it's changing consciousness. It's changing your yeah your sort of it's it's fiddling with your perceptions enough that your awareness okay. is slightly shifted. You know, okay. with alcohol, it's very subtle. Usually, unless you drink a lot, of yeah, and also because people are more used to what it feels like, right? Mm -hmm. And then you got like THC, but then you know, like an LSD or something like that would okay, be a, yeah. a whole different experience, right? Yeah, and so that changes things, right? And and it might the conversation being in it might be incredibly valuable, but like to a person listening who is sober or under the influence of something else, it might be the shittest conversation ever. It might be super dull or incoherent mm. or just a load of garbage, right? Because the two of them are having a different kind of experience. And like maybe all of the value of that interaction is just in like what they're saying with their eyes or just having another person to look at and not what they're actually saying. They might be talking about like which kind of crisps they're gonna open next or something, right? And it might be totally rubbish, but that might be a deep, spiritual experience for the actual person experiencing it. Um, and the same, so, so kind of tying onto that, when you're performing on stage, when you're, or when you're acting in, in a film or something like that, you're, you're thinking about your lines and what you've got to say, but you're also thinking about the art of performing. And so we're having this conversation now, this conversation is as much about the conversation we're having as it is a performance for people who are listening to this conversation mm -hmm. or for the other person in the conversation. Yeah. And so that thinking about the conversation, that meta thinking, is as important as, a, as an actor or actress thinking about their performance while it's happening, right? Do you not think that like actors who are not They just are thinking, the role. They are just playing the role. I, so so yeah. I, I agree with you that like, obviously we know we're recording this, so mm. there is some knowledge that we're making some sort of spectacle. Yeah. But I think that like the success or failure of whatever I'm going to say yeah. 
Like, I think I would, I'd be a better conversational partner if I was more present. Interesting. Whereas I, I think that the meta thinking is actually important. Mm. And so, so it's kind of like you're saying, you're saying like, you're saying like the method actors are better. I'm not saying that. In our our metaphor, right? So the method actors of conversation are are better. In other words, just being the conversation Mm. as and and not having to like put on a performance is is better, right? Mm. But then think about like what's required to be a method actor, right? You've got to actually become the thing. You've got to actually starve yourself if you want to, or, or you've got to actually like become a drunk to learn how to be a good drunk. But don't you think your metaphor breaks down there, right? Because so you, as you said, right, so to be a method actor, you have to become the thing. Yeah. Which would which would imply, right, that you know, if we continue your metaphor, to have the this conversation, you'd have to become me. In some, I'd have I to mean, just get yeah, closer sure, to what sure, I sure, am. As you're saying, however, an important Instead part of, of self-reflexive and I get yeah, it's a good it's a query on that, but. I think in a good intellectual conversation, mm. part of that is that sort of the old idiom of being able to entertain ideas without accepting them. And I so and I so I think you're running simulations of what it would be like to believe that thing. Okay. And so the meta thinking is therefore crucial. Okay. That's at least the the idea I'm putting forward on that as to yeah. why it might be useful to have the meta thinking. I think. And why the self might be important to certain kinds of conversation. Yeah, I think it's very much on the kinds of conversations. Mm. So me trying to talk to my mom about some emotional issue, yeah. I don't think the self needs to be present there. Like, yes. I just want to experience compassion and listen to this you know, person. Mm. And I think that the self there just is a barrier to connections. Yes. However, if you were listening to your mom talking about something emotional, maybe the self would be useful for you to have. If, so, maybe, so maybe for her, having the self is important because it allows her to not just react directly, but to be able to react in a way that's important for you. Because like, she's maybe. serving a role, she's performing in a certain way. You're like, so I, I want to get away from performing in a sense. I, I, I but, don't want to be playing a role. I just yeah, want to. Not all the time. Like sometimes I think it might be important not to, but I think being able to is an important thing in social interactions. Okay, maybe for social, uh, but I would agree with you that where you might want a self and more of your analytical thinking brain online, let's just say, is when you're trying to have this detailed, in-depth discussion of trading ideas. Because, I mean, I think the research is pretty clear. We Like as humans, we have this really, really problematic, troubling uh, tendency, which is if I give you a proposition, mm. our brains seem to default accept that that is true. And then it's, it takes no work to accept a proposition, but to refute one yes. takes work, right? I think the research is pretty clear on that. Yeah. If I tell you that um, Donald Trump actually has 16 mistresses, the research sort of seems to indicate that you've actually just accepted that fact and now you have to actually, actually find information to evidence to disprove it. Exactly. Whereas if, if we start with something that you tell me is untrue, the inverse. Like, it, it doesn't work the inverse. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, if I tell you something is untrue, if I say it's untrue that Donald Trump has 16 mistresses, I think the research is even more worrying because it suggests that, like, some worrying percentage of people who hear that phrase will also believe the fact that the fact is true, as in they will believe. Yeah. So I guess that maybe one place where the self might be useful is if you are, on, let me just say, online enough to start simulating implications of things maybe maybe it's useful there so, so it ties into maybe like do you think you can be a proper like Yudkowskian rationalist without <laughs> without the sense of self like in that mm. given moment like not all the time but like in a given moment like if you can't run simulations of your own thinking and then check yourself for biased thinking or weird thought patterns can you actually follow true rationality yeah. as, or, or what or what we're defining as true rationality uh, I'd be hard pressed to give you a, a an answer. answer but it's a thing to think about it is something to think about can I ask you something yeah. so we've actually been talking about thinking in general now mm. for a little while and I was watching actually a video a Richard Feynman video yesterday and he was talking about how he, he came to realize that 
seemingly you know, we are all almost the same in terms of what we think mm. and yet he, he almost discovered incidentally just how different thinking appears to people internally as in if, if someone else would come here and give us the instruction go think carefully about the implications of effective altruism for 20 minutes and come back I would just assume that you think the same thing counts as thinking as I do and so I want to know is there anything specific to how you think that you think might be interesting to talk about the example he gave was he was talking about counting and for him counting is an auditory thing so when someone says go and count he plays the words in his mind one two three mm. whereas he was talking to a mathematician friend and the mathematician friend it turns out when he thought about counting what he was doing was moving a mental image of a like a tape measure in his oh, mind wow. and so so Feynman just only through conversation wow. to discuss this yeah and the reason that actually came up is because Feynman was saying it's impossible for me to count and speak at the same time and that's because he was already using his voice part and the mathematician mm. was like the only reason they realized they did this differently was because the mathematician was like of course you can speak whilst you're counting watch and he was like he basically counted and spoke at the same time Feynman was like there's no way you can do that and it was because this guy was using his visual sense yeah. to, to move the needle in his mind so he could speak but he couldn't read whilst he was counting because he was already using the visual oh God, of his that brain. is fascinating that and is so great. I want to know if there's if, you know what maybe we can just start with that do you count audibly I uh, can't I can't uh, it's, also, it's, yeah it's auditory I, I, I'd, I'd assume that that's more common more common it's interesting because because of this man was a mathematician it's because of think? how we're taught yeah, yeah. but as we, you're taught to count audibly before you're taught to count board, like visually like you, you, you get taught it's count to three or one two maybe yeah, with your fingers yeah. but like you're not seeing the number line you're not like like that's mm. definitely a that mathematicians probably process things in certain ways mm. and repurpose their gray matter for that purpose right and this is for me like a really interesting uh, topic to dive into because mm. I often think about when you think about these people who have these tremendous insights right I mean Einstein is famous for using thought experiments to come to his insights right he didn't use like fancy lab techniques at least at the start mm. he just had a really interesting way of thinking about yeah. things right I mean he postulated what if you had what if you were observing something from all possible reference points from no reference point if, yeah. it was quite a visual thing right? mm. and so I think a lot about how so I mean, we know that we evolved brains such as ours through this long history on the savannah and so for one thing that we're really good at is facial recognition and I can't remember if we've spoken about it on this podcast before but the idea of uh, having characters in your head mm. uh, do, have we spoken? I don't think so it's worth I think maybe mentioning that, that little tech because yeah. I think that's a good example where mm. that way of thinking basically takes advantage of how did you phrase it again yeah so our, I kind of use the analogy of um, like modern computing when you're like running advanced algorithms and you, you, you your CPU just can't handle certain types of computations and you can get like a really average uh, you know CPU and RAM whatever but then you just bring this massive GPU and mm. do all these visual like based calculations and it's kind of like the human brain is like we're not very good at like arithmetic operations no, just in, in no, no like, good like, without, <laughs> yeah without, without like a piece of paper in front of you most people can't even multiply like two two digit numbers like accurately any you know significant yeah quantity of the time and that's what quite a bit of training but um we can remember like like a, a large number of the people we've met and something about them we can recognize their faces even if we've met them like once before years mm. ago we can remember the way to walk on like a hundred kilometer hike through the wilderness you know mm. what i mean like we can remember where the berries were like because our brains have evolved to to do those things through uh, selection pressures um because those were the things we're that very were good at those things yeah being social remembering social interactions mm. and characters, knowing about large distances because we're distance runners and foraging and hunting over mm. large distances and knowing how to then get back to your 
your uh, group or tribe at the mm. end of the day. So clearly, this mathematician that Feynman met was almost using yeah, his he, like large exactly. Yeah. So so yes, yeah, exactly. So it's like running something on the GPU instead of the yeah. CPU because it's much more powerful um, for certain computations. So yeah, I think I think a lot of human thinking actually is quite visual, and that's why it's useful to have like graphs and visualizations of things like that. It's it's much easier to mm. process weird and abstract ideas like that. But yeah, so this this kind of also ties into like an idea of like synesthesia, right? Just most, what that is. Yeah, most people will uh, will have people whose reports have synesthesia. It's, it's different sensory inputs kind of crossing over, right? So like common ones might be people will say that that smells or sounds quite purple, right? So mm -hmm. their visual and their auditory or visual and olfactory are, are linked, right? So like it's like a, it's like a purple kind of smell or it's a blue kind of sound. But it, it is not just the, the straight up conventional five or whatever senses. It's, it can be any kind of sensory overlap. So and that, you, you have that. So I have some interesting ones. So if I close my eyes, I can see in my mental space, not my visual space, mm. colors when I'm listening to music. Yeah. So there's a, there's a manifestation, but it's in the mental space. So it's not like the things when you close your eyes, you see like color from just yeah. like the tricks of your retina. Like I actually see it like in one, my like mind. Deep purple. Or like a... <laughs> Depends on the song. But yeah, various like color arrangements. Is, is it patterns as well? Yeah, patterns and shapes. It's kind of like a, like a Jackson Pollock animated Interesting. thing but that's so your whole life is an LSD trip essentially it's essentially there we go. every time I listen to a song I'm just tripping out but Love that's it. that's quite infrequent that I actually am like aware of that mm. but one that I've had almost I would imagine my whole life since I've been aware of it is numbers on the numerals have characters linked to them so they have like a gender and an age that I'm not sure if they stay consistent through time. Yeah. And then the interesting have been growing up with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but essentially is and yeah, so I've never like actually cataloged what every single one is. But then also as you combine them, then you get other like meta characters, right? So like thirteen is not just one and three together, it becomes a meta character of like the two of them. <laughs> But then like larger numbers that disappear, five digit numbers, the, the, mm. the, the characters, it's just the individual digits that maintain the characters, it doesn't become a super one. So the, some are meta, but at, like after the sort of like teens, it dies out. And I think part of the reason could be is like when you're getting taught to count or taught the alphabet in school, you get taught from like illustrations of things. So you'll have like the number one will be like in the, a certain color. And so a lot of people have like, Colors will link to numbers or to sounds and that, those kind of things. So it's always yeah, that I, I idea of the mathematician it. ties in mathematician well, mathematician ties into like a kind of synesthesia, right? So it's almost like oh. like a Pomodoro timer like thing or like a tape measure or something Whatever he's using with there. like a visual yeah, and it's it's almost like a kind of synesthesia. It's using spatial awareness to count these abstract concepts mm. of numerals, whereas most people are using the the auditory processing to, to do the kind Which of Which might not be actually that efficient, maybe. Yeah, I mean, so, most people, like when you ask them to remember a phone number, they're remembering they, it on they the sound. play the little jingle yeah. in almost. Dun, 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 dun. And you play that back, dun, 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 and then you like write it out. And that's why, the interesting thing is if you, ex it's about two seconds worth. And so if you extend it beyond two seconds, people will forget stuff. Mm. The interesting thing is that I think in Mandarin, saying the digits is they the shorter, shorter sounds, like one syllable almost. and so they can fit more into the two seconds, and so, so the average like Mandarin speaker yeah. can fit in like fifteen digits into that time and remember them, yeah. whereas the average English speaker it's seven, seven okay. to twelve, depending on interesting. Like, yeah, what I want to then just maybe briefly mention, like related to this whole thing, is is a concept which you and I have both used and, and spoken about a lot, which is this idea of of using our highly adapted hominid social software, right? 
this idea that we are really good at modeling characters, modeling the personalities of people in our tribe, and using that as a way to boost our thinking. Right? So what we've done in the past is taken either real or fictional characters, right? and used our internal models of them. Almost use that so that when we're trying to think through something, we can now invoke that character. So we say, what would Sam Harris say in this situation? Because I think what we've both found is that because our brains are so good at, at basically simulating personality, tendencies, habits of someone, it's actually quite easy then to invoke that and use it as a thinking crutch or a thinking mm. aid rather, you know? So if you ask me like, what would Sam Harris do in the situation where he was being shouted at by a heckler? I don't know, I've never seen Sam Harris get shouted at by a heckler, but my internal social model of him would be that he would be quite calm and collected and would discuss the thing very rationally with it. But using that has been like a, a real helpful way and we've, we've spoken about and maybe it's worth mentioning some of the people we are sometimes carrying around in our heads here yeah. because i think that's a good example of you know this mathematician using a different way of thinking i think for mm. us this is the one that we have tried to invoke at least in the past is absolutely these, these characters yeah and it's, it's incredibly useful it's, it's essentially like having a set of mental models but mm. now you're you're wrapping them in these people to make it easier to remember and easier to apply in situations where you really need them because you mm. you're in an altered state of mind or you're under pressure or you might otherwise forget the actual like regular sort of way in which the model is mm. is, is conveyed yeah it's just incredibly useful so yeah i mean do you want to go through some some characters that we found useful i think yes yeah, so what i want to mention right is you read a book you can vaguely remember the book but if you just take the book and embody its central like ideas mm. in the character of, of a memorable character in the book or the author or whatever that is just much more durable. That's why people like uh, Camus and Sartre used to write like fiction. At least I know Camus would almost express it for this purpose. The best way to convey his philosophy was by creating stories characters. because people are really good at, I mean, we, we presumably evolved to remember stories and characters and things very well. Because not just characters, like mm. characters through time with actions and arcs and narratives, yes. right? Because that's the, the oral tradition. And we are excellent at remembering that. Yeah, because that's how we used to encode our information mm. in the ancestral environment. And so that's a, a remarkable way of, of remembering things. And, and it's very useful if the author was exploiting that effectively, mm. right? So like, obviously one of the greatest examples I think of this is um, Eliezer Yudkowsky's uh, fan fiction Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, which it's I true. don't shut up about because he was semi-consciously, according to him, but probably quite consciously, leveraging the story to make very memorable lessons of key ideas and mm. rationality that are otherwise potentially inaccessible to most people, mm. or difficult to remember or recall or to act on. Whereas now you can just go and like, oh, I remember what Harry did in the situation where he was with Draco Malfoy, you know, without mm. spoiling anything. So yeah, that, that kind of thing and, and what they said it did. Or it's, it's like the example with the, uh, asking the portraits and figuring out the, the genetic lineage and like that sort of thing. It's like how to conduct a good experiment. You can just remember the story and the ideas come along for the ride and that's incredibly valuable. And moreover, the idea of emulating. I think Sam Harris actually spoke to Stephen Fry about this in a recent podcast episode. He's like, Imagine if you walked into a bar and were like, what would Jason Bourne or James Bond do? Like, it could act like them walking into this bar and suddenly the person's confidence like triples, you know what I mean? Mm. You walk into the- I've tried something like that. Yeah, like it's incredibly useful, right? And it's the same as what would this person do in that situation? You're essentially just like acting like that person would act in order to embody the useful mental patterns and, and properties of mm. that person. So it's useful not just from the side, sense of uh, mental models, but also like 
character traits mm. and like personality traits, right? So it's, it's incredibly valuable in that, in that regard and cultivating these things I've found so far in the short time I've been actively doing it quite mm. valuable. So let's talk maybe about some of the characters we have mm. and what mental models we're using them to embody. So yeah. I'll start with the one that like I really enjoy is imagining like a Richard Feynman in my head. So I had never done that, right? But when you mentioned earlier saying you wanted to be playful and then I don't really get what you meant. And then you said like Richard Feynman and I'm like, oh, that's perfect. Like that's now my male model of what it means to be intellectual but playful, right? Like yes. that, that's it. I just, what would Richard Feynman do? It's such a good, right? Because you, you, you immediately know what I'm going for. I'm not talking clownish, playful, exactly. I'm not talking about being the class. I'm talking about someone who is so delighted with reality, yeah. but reality, yeah. you know, like exactly. for, for Feynman, he was able to almost delight in the fact that wine and grapes and people were all made out of the same things. Yeah. And stars and the universe. Yeah, exactly. And he found that tremendously enlivening. Yeah. And so that And he used that to pick up a girl at a bar and then and he cracked a safe and left someone a note in it about <laughs> something and used it to win a bet. Exactly. And like it's He's, that kind he, of He embodies everything that I, yeah. I want to be in, in that sense, right? Yeah. So Feynman you know, is, is like a lovely one that I find if you can ask yourself how would Feynman Think about this. How would he, he act in the situation? That that seems. To I'm be adding that today to the to the collection. Yeah. Okay. Well, hit me with one of yours. So I think one that I've I've adopted in like the last year or so has been Jocko Willick, right? The, yeah. the Navy Seal, ex Navy like Seal it. commander, um, and now like motivational voice badass. in my yeah, I'm just badass, right? Like, so and I've used that for you very effectively in terms of just like motivating myself to do things that I know I should do, but I don't want to do. Getting up in the morning, going to gym, pushing myself at gym, mm. those kind of core things, or like resisting, resisting donuts, sugar-coated lies. Yeah. yeah, those kind of things. It's like, you don't need that donut. You don't even need to eat for 30 days. You know, like, <laughs> like yeah, and you're, you're totally right. You're totally right. It's like, yeah, mm. the donut's there and it's free and I want it. But I don't need it. And in mm. fact, I don't need food for 30 days and I won't die. Exactly. You know what I mean? And like, it's incredibly motivating because you start looking at like, imagine that you were at his boot camp, you know what I mean? Like he's your like drill sergeant. And it's, it's like you can do an impression of him in your head and imagine that he's there pushing you. I've definitely upped my game when I'm thinking that. Right. 100%. And I think the reason this is so useful and why this example is such a good one is because, so like Jocko has written books about like motivation and discipline. And the thing is though, like if you ask me to like, quote from the books, I cannot remember. Yeah. But if you asked me, what would Jocko do in this situation? Like put two donuts in front of me and then just get me to invoke Jocko. Yeah. I don't have to remember what he wrote in, in his books. I just know that Jocko would say, fucking don't do it. Yeah. And, and that exactly. is incredibly helpful. You, we, like we have yeah. memes of him, like we have memes of Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson mm. or any other person who we find interesting. But memes, they're fun, but they're still memes in the Dawkinsian sense, right? They're, they're still they're, they're like intellectual viruses, intellectual genes, right? That can reproduce independently. And so they're very effective and very useful mm. for us. And so by being entertaining, they become sticky. Mm. They become naturally selected for and cultivating yeah. that. It's like taking joy in the fact that Jaco says that eating like junk food, it's sugar-coated lies. Like mm. finding that so amusing is incredibly sticky because now I can never look at, I, another at sugar again, <laughs> yeah, without thinking sugar-coated lies, right? Right? And that's incredibly bad. Even when I'm going to cheat and actually eat something that I know I shouldn't, I, I will say- There's the confession in your mind if you just had sugar-coated lies, right? Look at this, yeah. <laughs> and that's incredibly mm. powerful, right? Mm. And so yeah, so yeah, cool, hit me, hit me with another. This will not surprise anyone who knows me, but Sam Harris I find to be a paradigm of thoughtfulness and reasoned argument and almost like a sort of stoic resolve not to get flustered by maybe even unfair mm. counts arguments. You know, a lot of people don't like him. Uh, a lot of people I'm friends with don't like him. 
And I think for me, the value of, of Sam Harris is he knows that people don't like him. And he, he always strikes me as fair, though. Like, mm. Intellectually lot, honest, which yeah, is this whole the, vibe, yeah. And in fact, that may be my, my, my model, is when I'm finding it difficult to try and like, own up to something or like, be honest with someone, the, the model of Sam, like asking what would Sam Harris say if he knew that I was going to shade the truth in this way? Like, would, would Sam Harris say that this is shading the truth? Or would yeah. he say that that was actually honest and you mm. conveyed all that you knew in the situation that was relevant for that other person yeah. to know? So for keeping me like honest and on top of things from like a point of view of not deceiving others. Absolutely. That Sam, Sam has a really useful Yeah, just being there. calm, collected, using the full extent of your vocabulary to express your thoughts and your mm. concerns, being deliberate about how you phrase things and how you mm. convey ideas and just being calm and collected in that situation. And then you bring up an interesting thing as you say people, friends of yours don't like him. I know a lot of people who haven't liked him and have then gone on to actually like listen to him speaking and having discussions and then mm. gone actually I can get behind what, a lot of what this guy says like even for religious people who you know there's an obvious clear reason not to like it yeah exactly mm. like the cognitive dissonance of it who have then gone yeah actually like I used to think he was a dick right like after the Ben Affleck thing and, oh, yeah. and, and all of that and, and then but it's like but it was entirely from what they'd read about it it was all meta yeah. knowing and now once you get to that like you yeah, listen to like a three hour podcast of Sam Harris like debating or discussing things with a person who has slightly different views mm. man even even if you thought everything he said was repugnant the way he conveyed his viewpoints is there's something to be said for that right and then and then I'll you know leapfrog with that to another one which is like a Jordan Peterson right like a controversial figure right yeah entertaining sticky meme but there are things about him the things like let me straight up and say the things about it that I don't like and that I disagree with yeah but I think at the same time there's some things about him that are super valuable and resonate with a lot of people I don't think he would be nearly as popular and, and people it's not just that he's popular like Donald Trump's popular in mm -hmm. a way but it's people are like you changed my life right like it's not just wearing a MAGA hat like it's a kind of like you've changed my life type of thing the way I look at the world mm -hmm. and improved my like sense of self and responsibility and things so there are things like that and just like his, his ideas about you know like the clean your room meme and the you know holding your head up high time like those things are valuable and then for me the the most important of all the things he does is steel manning which is the opposite of straw manning yeah. right which is instead of taking your opponent's argument and creating a parody of it a straw man mm. um, that's easier to defeat than the original argument you instead take their argument as they present it and you make the strongest possible version of that argument that you can possibly construct mm. and then you attack that yeah right the other person should you should say their argument back to them and they should go that's better than i could have put it myself or mm. at least i that's exactly right mm. you should strive to do that because Which then so, so because then right. if you destroy it well then you've changed their mind or, or, the, the, or you've, at least that's the best chance of changing their mind or anyone else's mind, right? Because you destroy the strongest possible argument. And if you fail to, you might realize that they were right. right? Like, this, is, this is the height of, like, of rational debate and discussion mm. with any kind of goal of achieving anything other than just making people clap and click for you on a stage, right? So, so, they, so, so, <laughs> so Jordan Peterson, from the perspective of just like the keeping, keeping the, the old, the, the, the old adages and like the traditional wisdom alive in so much as that it's useful, tidying your room and keep holding your head up high. Those things are like valuable regardless of the generation or who said them, you know, like mm. those things just resonate. And we tend to drop a lot of those things with 
the other crap that we dropped from the past of like, you know, the misogyny and things like that, which should go. Mm. But then we, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, but the steel manning factor, I mean, that, that alone, if there's one thing that anyone should care about when it comes to Jordan Beeson, steel manning. Mm, I like it. Is that, a, is that a good note to end on, sir? I think that's, uh, a, might be a, that's a man of steel was not a good one to end on, but uh, <laughs> a steel, steel man, man is. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bit of a Tangent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us and share your thoughts. You can email us at podtangent at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter through the handle at podtangent. For more information about us, our backgrounds, and other projects we're involved in, visit our website at podtangent.com. That's podtangent.com. The best ways to support us are to share one of our episodes with someone who may enjoy them and to give us a rating or review on iTunes. That way, Apple knows that we're actually worth listening to and all the platforms that pull content from them will too. We both love having these discussions and relish the opportunity to share ideas with like-minded people around the world. So your support and listenership are sincerely appreciated. Until next time.